Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Jared Watt, the podcast producer and specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post. This being our last episode of the year, we thought it would be nice to do a recap of all that's happened in the world of China geopolitics in 2021. But perhaps to no surprise, significant developments occurred while we were sleeping here in Hong Kong, and we now find ourselves catching up on what we missed in the last 24 hours. In fact, there's so much going on in the world of China geopolitics, in the US, the EU, and in Japan. We're making this a special two-part podcast to finish up for 2021 so you can get the full picture of how things have changed this year. We're going to start off with what happened overnight. More than a year after it was first introduced, the US Congress has approved the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. This puts a ban on all imports that are either wholly or partially sourced from Xinjiang. Now, if you've been following this podcast for the past few years or the coverage from my colleagues on SEMP.com, you'll know this covers a huge range of products, from the cotton used in clothing to fresh tomatoes to the materials that make solar panels, as well as major companies like Nike and Coca-Cola. And speaking of household names in this gift-giving season, if you're one of the millions of people who bought a drone made by DJI for Christmas, you better watch out. Your present just made the naughty list. And by that, I mean what the US Treasury Department calls the Chinese military-industrial complex companies list. This is a list of companies that are now banned from receiving any investment from US citizens. It doesn't mean a ban on sales of DJI drones in the US just yet, but it's the next step in Washington's escalating sanctions on companies it says are involved of what it calls ongoing abuses of ethnic and religious minority groups in Xinjiang. All of this comes in a week where the US finally announced its new ambassador for Beijing and the infamous Twitter troll and editor of the Global Times announced his retirement. You're going to hear more about that, as well as a wrap on the roller coaster of US and China relations in 2021 and what just might be around the corner next year in 2022. As our dear friends Finbar Birmingham and Chad Bray might say, hold on to your hat, let's step out over the line. So what started out as a interview with two senior reporters to recap the year, of course, we weighed into news that's happened overnight that's quite significant between the US and China. Owen Churchill is a reporter in our North American bureau based on the west coast of the USA. And William Zhang is a senior reporter with our China desk based here in Hong Kong. Good morning to you both. Hi, morning. Hi. I want to have to start with some of the news that broke while we were sleeping here in Hong Kong, and that is the company that is synonymous with drones and drone making, DJI, has just been added to a military industrial blacklist. Can you give us a brief update on that? Yeah, absolutely, Jared. So the DJI, as you said, it was it was added to this new military blacklist, which 
effectively bars U.S. investors from from taking financial stakes in those firms. Um, and at the same time, it also, in a parallel track, added them to an entity list, which means that U.S. companies can't export technology to them. So DJI is obviously the most prominent part, the most prominent company that's added to this list. And the Treasury came out today saying that DJI had been selling drones to the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau, uh, which was then using them in its surveillance efforts against um, Uyghurs. And it's, you know, it's, it's the latest in a string of um, sanctioning and, and blacklisting actions that the administration has taken as it, as it you know, rolls out these policies in response to what it alleges are grave human rights abuses by, by the Chinese government in Xinjiang. We'll get deeper into the ongoing issue of Xinjiang, the alleged abuses and the ongoing sanctions from the US in just a couple of minutes. But I want also overnight, there was a major announcement in terms of US-China diplomacy. There is a new ambassador to China. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's been almost a year into the Joe Biden presidency, and he hasn't had a representative on the ground in Beijing. It's quite astonishing given you know the, the how high the stakes are in the relationship and how how critical Washington views that relationship finally Nicholas Burns he's a he's a veteran diplomat he served in both Republican and Democrat administrations he has quite broad bipartisan support he was finally confirmed today in the Senate with a vote after a kind of gridlock where one senator Marco Rubio who's you know he's a very outspoken China hawk on the hill. He he had a hold on his nomination because he was he had concerns about Nicholas Burns' ties to business ties in China. But that lifted today and it was the result of a kind of deal that Rubio struck with other senators to pass his forced labor bill, which I'm sure we'll get into shortly, through the Senate, get that sent to the White House. And as part of that deal, he agreed, okay, I'll lift my hold on this on this nomination. I'll let that go ahead. And so now, 11 months into the administration, we have a new ambassador set to take take up office in Beijing. William, can I ask you, earlier this year, we spoke about you know, China appointing a new ambassador you know, to Washington, Xinjiang, and what he had ahead of him as a job. Tell us what Nicholas Burns is walking into in Beijing. What, what kind of reception will he get and what kind of job lays ahead for him? Well, I I suppose that uh, comparing to Qinggang's job and Burns' job, they are all equal. They are just two sides of one coin. That's uh, Sino-U.S. relationships, which has been on a free fall during Trump's days. And so a little bit of glimpse of light at the beginning of Biden's administration. But I have uh, gone through my years reading a few things pretty much uh, apparent. One, the decoupling efforts are continuing without much slowing down. Look at how many bills U.S. have passed on Xinjiang, sanctioned China's high-tech companies, security companies, and now about the Winter Olympics. Are we going to attend? Not most of the U.S. and its allies says no. But there has been a little bit of a breakthrough on climate change, and especially the two countries' top leadership are starting to talk to each other, meet each other, and talk about their concerns, which is a marked improvement comparing to Trump's era. So all in all, I think Burns and Qinggang's job is slightly better in the way that now they at least 
have channels to talk to each other. Previously, I think it was just, I'm not going to talk to you, you are not going to talk to me kind of situation. But now, at least, the diplomats are the communication channels. William, this makes a marked difference from, I guess, what we saw previously in the previous administration where we never heard about the US ambassador to China. We just woke up in the morning and wondered what was on Donald Trump's Twitter account. So I guess you're right. In that sense, we are getting back to what was a the established tradition of diplomacy between the US and China. Yeah. Previously, some people called it uh, warrior wolf diplomacy. I personally call it mud wrestling diplomacy, where Trump would tweet, then Zhao Lijian would tweet back, and Hu Xijin would join the battle, and some of the US senators would jump in. And you mentioned Hu Jijin, the, the editor of the Global Times, the, you know, the barking tabloid propaganda mouthpiece of the CCP. He has just retired. And just in a sense, is that not a significant change in itself in, in US-China communication? Yeah. In fact, throughout this year, a lot of official channels have already started. And it's running quite well, actually, starting from first phone call between the leaders, then Wendy Sherman's Tianjin visit, and gradually you, you can see that although they have a little bit of quarreling in uh, Alaska, but I mean, quarreling is still better than fighting, right? Then at the end of the year, there is Xi and Biden summit, though over a, a video link, but still better than not seeing each other on any screen, right? So overall, I think it's back to the normal diplomacy stories but we don't know what's going to come after the midterm. What will happen? Will Biden continue to hold his job? It's quite a possibility. We need to go back to mud wrestling politics where she will employ someone different or more capable or speaks or writes better English than Hu Xijin to do the mud wrestling with Donald Trump and his equivalents, right? So I think... Burns and Ambassador Chingang will both have more things to do in their itineraries. And that's good for China and US when we have the proper channel of diplomacy opening. That's substantially better than mud wrestling. Sometimes when the flares goes up and the tensions goes up and things become uncontrollable. In normal diplomacy where there are closed-door meetings, where the actual quarreling, threatening, bargaining happening behind the closed door, where the management of public sentiment is much easier rather than the leaders and diplomats spit on each other's face and put up a big fight. And then it became very uncontrollable. That's what Biden's building the fence around China-US relationship type of thing actually works. It, we really need that to avoid any kind of unintended consequences. Well, leading on from that, talking about building a fence around uh, Sino-US relations, it looks like just a new a new role of barbed wire has been put across that fence. Owen, overnight, this new level of sanctions regarding Xinjiang, take us through what has happened. Last year, at the beginning of 2020, lawmakers introduced legislation that would effectively ban the imports of any goods sourced wholly or in part in Xinjiang over concerns about forced labor. And that's you know, very significant, not only because of the substance of the allegations that the US is making, but also just the sheer size of Xinjiang's role 
in the global economy. It's obviously a very big producer of cotton, other agricultural goods. Now, that legislation, it had broad support across both parties, as you'd expect, given the current kind of dynamics in Washington. But it didn't manage to get through in time by the end of the year before Congress went on recess. And so it was wiped off the docket in January, had to be reintroduced. And just today, the Senate finally passed a kind of reconciled version of the bill that brought together both the House and Senate versions, passed that, and now it's on its way to the White House where Joe Biden has said he will sign it into law. So it's a hugely consequential bill, probably the most consequential China bill that the US Congress has passed in recent years. And you know that's even as it's passed other big bills like the, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, all these other bills that have been hitting China very hard, but none of them has had quite so much in the way of actual substantive consequence. You know, we're not going to let any goods that come from Xinjiang, even in part from Xinjiang, we're not going to let them come into the US. Now, obviously, that's going to have huge ramifications for importers. They're going to have to shift their supply chains. It's also going to be a monumental task for the border agency that is going to be tasked with screening all these imports. But it's a real sign of the amount of pressure that there is from lawmakers on the administration you know, regardless of which direction the, the US administration wants to go in terms of its foreign policy and its engagement with China through these increasing diplomatic channels that William was talking about, regardless of that intention, its hands are to a degree tied by this rising appetite for a strong policy on China from lawmakers, which I'm sure we'll see rise as we get closer and closer to the midterms next year. Owen, a lot of your reporting, as well as the reporting of Finbar Birmingham and the rest of the political economy team here at the SNP, has really brought out a lot about just how deep the US relationship, the US commercial relationship with the Xinjiang is. Before I get more into that, William, I have to ask you, hearing that this the most substantive you know, legislative move from the US over uh, Xinjiang in sanctioning companies... How might Beijing respond to this? What kind of you know, in-kind response would that might, might Actually, uh, if you watch, uh, I, I believe most of the SEMP folks are not like me. I watch China's official TV every day. Well, actually, China had responded to that by a presser in Xinjiang, which aired the terrorist attack, a few never-shown footage on previous terror attacks. So it's very interesting where China has based itself on the anti-terror kind of anger, saying that what we are doing in Xinjiang is to clear up all the radical fractions and trying to re-educate these people to become good citizens. Well, it has consistently denied the Western's allegation on human rights abuses and the laboring of genocide in Xinjiang and, and all that. However, when I was chit-chatting with some of China's political analysts and someone actually joked, saying that, how about we brand every export to the U.S. from Xinjiang origin? How would it help U.S. inflation? That would be fun to look at a possibility where, in retaliation, one of the theoretical possibilities, I don't think this is going to happen, but what if China is able to label many of the essential products, say Christmas toys, 
to America, and it's produced in Xinjiang. So how is it going to help U.S. inflation, which China has so far has been a world factory and a top exporter to the U.S.? So that's a very interesting possibility. And very interestingly, where in China, the kind of labor, it's part of Xi's poverty alleviation efforts. That which has always been seen as the great evidence of how party love the people, where I give you jobs, I give you employment, and now see you are no longer need to plow in the field. Now you sit in the aircon factories assembling toys to be ready shipped to the U.S. So while China sees it as a better human rights improvement, when the U.S. is sanctioning on this, this is really very interesting phenomena. Where how can we actually reconcile this? Among the people, and among the lawmakers, and among the government officials, I I think this is one of the widest gap, bigger than the Pacific Ocean, man. I can only imagine what kind of state media-backed propaganda effort we'll see. Having seen previously early this year the images put out, I think it was the Hu Jin in the Global Times, the images of African American slave labor on the cotton fields versus the Quote, you know, happy laborers of Xinjiang using, you know, John Deere machinery. Uh, uh, Owen, clearly there's a lot of your reporting, and as I said, the, the political economy desk reporting that's gone before this to go back on in terms of the deep, deep links between, you know, not just the, the US cotton industry, fashion, everything from Nike, but there's also, you know, tomatoes and of course, the solar cell industry, photovoltaics, the repercussions of this, how long would this sort of take to manifest itself, having seen just overnight this major piece of legislation go before the the US Senate? Yeah, I think one thing that's important to bear in mind here is that this really isn't an overnight change. And in fact, even before this legislation was brought to a vote, there has been increasing scrutiny of allegations about forced labor in Xinjiang. And a number of U.S. companies, in fact, many U.S. companies, had already started trying to extract themselves proactively from Xinjiang, from the region, trying to move their supply chains elsewhere. So this kind of decoupling from Xinjiang has already been in effect for months, if not years. And that is obviously now going to accelerate. As for specific timelines, once President Joe Biden signs this bill into law, which he'll He'll have to do within 10 days of receiving it. Once that is enacted, the U.S. administration, the federal government, will have six months to basically come up with a plan of how it's going to enforce it. And at the six-month mark, it then has to say, okay, now the, the prohibition is in effect, and we're going to stop all companies from importing goods from Xinjiang. And we should know that it's not actually a blanket ban. Companies can appeal and they can say, look, look at our supply chains. They're free of forced labor. They have to provide, quote, unquote, clear and convincing evidence to that effect. But at the same time, experts in the region have, have basically come out and said that it's really impossible for independent auditors to go into Xinjiang, to go into these factories and get you know, unbridled access to these sites and complete these investigations to prove that there's no forced labor there. And you know, because that's basically impossible at this stage because of lack of access to the region, it is in effect a kind of blanket and absolute ban. And William has posited the theory that 
perhaps there may be a response from China to say, start labeling many more products as somehow... Yeah, the- uh, those, those comments are made to me in a joking sense, but I don't think China would be so blunt. China still want to present itself as an ethical player in the world where it will not adopt such drastic measures of actually labouring uh, all its exports to the US uh, from Xinjiang and, and test out the political will between both sides. That's too much to lose. However, I was sitting here pondering, if I were a China exporter from Xinjiang, what I would do? It's actually quite easy. I can shift my factory out of Xinjiang to neighbouring provinces like Gansu, Inner Mongolia and anywhere where I have my origins, I continue to source my cotton from the Xinjiang's cotton field. And I put a stamp on on my final product saying that, uh, oh, this is a Gansu product. And I can say it's from Inner Mongolia. I can say it's from Tibet. I have like 30 provinces for me to choose from to import to the United States. So at the end of the day, I totally agree with Owen. How do you enforce such law? How do you check the origin of the goods? And how do you catch those people making false representation? So all these are complications that we we will have to see. We might be seeing some of the provinces and the autonomous region around Xinjiang suddenly has a export loose. We don't know, right? There can always be an overnight substitution effect. Or behind the closed doors, some people might have landed some factories, some stamps to stamp their goods as not from Xinjiang. Who knows? Hey, I'm Jasmine, the other podcast producer here at the South China Morning Post. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our new podcast newsletter, The Listening Post. Each week, we'll give you a recap of what we worked on, reviews of podcasts we've been listening to, and a behind-the-scenes of SCMP podcast production. Subscribe now for our end-of-the-year edition at scmp.com slash newsletter. We're going to have a short break and be back in a new year. This being our last episode of the China Geopolitics podcast for this year, I just want to ask you both, I want to go back to the start of this year and sort of like contrast where we were at the start of this year, whereas where we've just ended, we've heard where we've just ended now, new sanctions uh, from everything from DJI to Xinjiang, plus a new ambassador to Beijing. When we started this year with Beijing waiting expectantly for a new White House administration and a new approach towards US China relationship. Here we are 12 months in, how would you sort of sum up the progression of the year? I would say the decoupling is continuing and even to a certain degree accelerating. There has been marked improvement in communication. I do think that's going to be continued because both sides saw the necessity of that. And there has been limited success in the joint climate change declaration and the release of Meng Wanzhou To a certain degree, I think Blinken is trying to undo a lot of things done by Bolton, which he thinks that's the wrong strategy, tackling China, where Blinken and Biden administration obviously adopted a new approach, reconnect with the allies, build a group effort against China to contain China. And thirdly, I think in Taiwan, 
in a few political hotspots like Ukraine, all the major players are looking at who have what cards in their hands now. That's why if you look at the crystal ball next year, a lot of things are unclear, but I think Russia and China will work closer, obviously, and especially when China will back up Russia's action in Ukraine, and probably Russia will back up China in Taiwan, where they will trade this card. That's quite evident. And the U.S. will continue to rally its allies around China, where uh, you see a more vocal Japan. And Blinken have just visited Southeast Asia. And moving further to the Europe, this year, EU and the G7 has all voiced its concerns over China, despite the fact that some of the member states still want to keep a very good, amicable trade relationship with China. And I think that's going to continue. And China will definitely do its counter-offenses, develop its navy fleet, and continue its honeymoon with Putin, and exert more pressure on its neighbors to have more geopolitical support surrounding it. That's probably that's what we are going to see, but I do not agree with some people saying that there would be major changes across the strait because uh, next year China is going to have its 20th Party Congress. What she wanted before the Congress is always stability. A war is the worst kind of instability per se. So I don't think China will want a war around the strait. However, that doesn't stop him from like heighten the tension around there. Where US is having its midterm, we don't know what's going to come after that. So personally, I'm pessimistic because overall, all the hopes that we had at the beginning of the year was largely gone. And we are back to the cold reality that China and US are decoupling in multiple front trade, capital, technology, human flow, everything. We need to tighten up our seatbelt towards uh, New Year with more conflicts, new variants of COVID, and more sanctions on China where China will fight back. And a party congress where a boring politics will continue in China where I think President Xi will very likely continue his terms going on. Well, let's talk about the contrast between the, quote, boring politics of Beijing versus Owen, to recap the year, I was just thinking that, you know, at a time where Washington is still trying to figure out which members of Congress were conspiring to overthrow an election, the one bipartisan issue, it seems, that brings Democrats and Republicans together is the hard approach to China policy. So how have you seen this year progress? Yeah, I think I think William's assessment is is spot on and from from the US perspective, there were certainly a lot of question marks about which direction the Biden administration was going to take China policy. I would cast my mind back to his inauguration in January. You know, his message that he really wanted to drive home was that the US is going to repair its alliances and it's going to engage with the world again. If you compare that to Trump's inaugural speech, um, it was all America first, America first, America first. So there was, you know, there was a real sense that it was going to be all about engagement. And certainly that's been true when it comes to working with allies, you know, repairing all of those ties, rejoining multilateral 
platforms and forums like the, the WHO, Paris Agreement on Climate. And then, you know, even just Joe Biden's, his background as a kind of foreign policy veteran, you know, he was, he was on the Senate, led the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many years. He did a lot of whining and dining of foreign leaders when he was vice president, including his then counterpart, Xi Jinping. You know, there was a real sense that it was all going to be about diplomacy, and that would include working with Beijing. And yes, we have seen that in some senses in limited kind of silos. There's been some progress with working groups, in addition to, of course, this big, the highly anticipated summit between Biden and Xi. But really, I think it's mainly been a change in tone rather than substance when we compare it to the Trump administration. There hasn't been any big U-turns in the major kind of China policies. And if anything, as William said, you know, it has escalated in other parts. We have this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics which the U.S. is spearheading, and, and they seem to have got a lot of support from other allies. There's been, you know, intense blowback in the U.S. to the whole Peng Shui episode. That was, I think that was also close to a turning point in terms of kind of public imagining and public opinion really engaging with the China issue. And then, of course, um, you know, as we've said a number of times in this episode so far, the midterms are around the corner well, yeah, a year away, but around the corner in, in a sense. And that's only going to mean that, although, you know, although foreign policy doesn't tend to, to weigh heavily on voters' minds, we're seeing China more and more being used as a kind of political bludgeon, kind of a barometer of a, of a candidate's position. It'll be used certainly on the Republican side to attack Democrats. Um, so we'll see an escalation there. And, and I'm sure the administration will be thinking about that as it does try and move forward with its own China policy. As always, there's so much more to come. William Zhang, Owen Churchill, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Jared. Thank you. That's all for part one of our end-of-year China geopolitics jamboree. In part two, we're headed to Brussels as well as Tokyo for some in-depth analysis of how attitudes, outlooks and policies towards China have changed significantly over the past 12 months. You could call these tectonic shifts. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to find out. I'll speak to you then. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.